open to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 738. Page 738. This is Daniel chapter 2, Bad Dreams and Bad News, part 2. So last week, um, my eyes were too big for my stomach. And I realized, you know what, we need to split this into two weeks as just the amount of information and uh, action here in Daniel 2. And so today we'll conclude Daniel chapter 2 as we find out what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, dreamt, I guess, what he dreamt, and uh, the explanation of it and how God works through that. So if you found your way there to Daniel 2, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to come and to hear from your word. Lord, I pray as I open your word that I would clearly explain and exposit the text. Lord, that the main point of the passage, Lord, is clearly reflected in my sermon. Lord, that through this that we are challenged to be more like Jesus through trusting you, through realizing that you are sovereign over all kingdoms of men. And Lord, this is not cause for worry, but rather rejoicing and a settled hope. Understanding that the future, though we know the ultimate end, some things are clouded to us, but we can trust you, knowing that you are in control. Lord, help us now as we come to your word to understand it, to apply it to our lives. Lord, that through it, you would make us more like Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 46 and 47 for us as we begin. Daniel 2, verses 46 and 47. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Growing up, I loved looking at maps and charts and timelines. Uh, I, I still enjoy that. There are several books that I had growing up about the presidents and about the United States at war and diagrams and maps and movements and all this. And um, those books my mom didn't throw away. And she has wonderfully given them back to me. <laughs> uh, parents have hopefully a good way of doing that, of passing things back down to their kids but now they live uh, in Ezra's room. And oftentimes, I'll find him looking at the maps and asking questions just like I was at his age. I just love, uh, I find it fascinating, right? The rising and falling of nations. I have uh, an Adam's chronological chart, and it's, I think, 20 feet long. It's like three feet high. You unfold it, it's 20 feet long, and it's all of recorded history, starting from the, the Garden of Eden, out, basically to about the, the early 1900s. And it overlays biblical history with world history. And you see how different nations rise and fall and come to power throughout all that. And, and it's really neat to look at. It's really fascinating. But when you take a step back and look at that huge chart, there's one thing that is overarching. The kingdoms that were at the beginning of that chart, though some of them lasted for a long time, they've all come to an end. Some of them grew very large, but then all of a sudden they ended. They stopped. 
Then a new nation took their place, and then nations split, or nations merged, and they formed, and they, they molded, and they shaped, and they were put together and taken apart over the course of history. There's not one nation that began early in the chart that still exists at the end of the chart. That's fascinating, because as you look at that, and you look at the top, which covers biblical history, you realize there is one kingdom that is still there ruling and reigning. God's kingdom is over all of that. His power, his authority, his sovereignty is over all of that. As we come to our second half of Daniel chapter 2 here, we see God's plan for the future of the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. We learned about that last week, and he wanted to know what the dream meant. So he brought in his wise men. He asked them, what does my dream mean? And they said, well, king, tell us what your dream was, and we'll explain it to you. He says, no, no, no. I want you to show your power by explaining my dream to me. I'm not going to tell you. You need to tell me what it is. And they said, we can't do that. And he said, then I'm going to kill you. And not only you, but every other wise man or enchanter or magician or sorcerer in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was so overwhelmed and perplexed and troubled by this dream that he was in a fit of rage. He wanted the answer. And when his counselors could not give it to him, death was the answer. Of course, Daniel and his friends were in that class of counselors, of wise men. And so they themselves were going to be put to death. But Daniel pleaded and said, no, give us a moment to inquire of our God. And Daniel does that. And the Lord graciously reveals in a vision to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And through Daniel's vision from the Lord, he now is coming to explain what this was to the king. Daniel has been granted this gracious gift by God to not only preserve his life, but the life of many wise men in the city and in the nation. It demonstrates God's bringing glory to himself through this provision of wisdom and understanding. Our big idea for this whole chapter is this, is through the provision of wisdom and understanding to Daniel, God brings glory to himself by revealing the end of human kingdoms and the eternality of his kingdom. So we've already looked at here the failure of the false religions. The wise men, the sorcerers, they were empty. They failed. And then we see here how the faithfulness of the one true God, of God, is expressed through the giving of this vision to Daniel. False religions fail, but God is faithful. He is good, and he provides wisdom and understanding for those who humbly seek it. And that brings us to our third point, which is the second half of our message here is this. Is that God demonstrates his glory through the future of the kingdoms of men. God demonstrates his glory through the eternality of his kingdom and the end of the future of the kingdoms of men. So we looked at up through verse 24. So let's begin at verse 25. and We'll walk our way through the rest of the chapter here following the revealing of this vision to Daniel, Daniel gives praise to God through this prayer. And then he comes to Arioch, who is captain of the king's guard, who was sent to kill all the wise men. 
And he says, wait, I've received this vision. Let me have an audience before the king. I will explain it. So verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Hopefully you see there the half-truth that Arioch is demonstrating. Did Arioch find this man? No. <laughs> Daniel came to him and said, hey, don't kill us. Give me a moment. But we see some, some politics here. Lord, I found this man. <laughs> When he gives the answer, remember, I'm the one who found him, right? It's the politics of Babylon here. It's just an interesting note that Daniel records that for us. And he says, I found him, and he's going to make known the interpretation. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name. And he asked this question, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation? That's an interesting question. The king is asking Daniel, Daniel, can you make known to me the dream and what it means? And what are we expecting Daniel to say? Yes, I can. What does Daniel say? Verse 27. No wise man, encanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Wait, Daniel, that includes you. Daniel's basically saying, no man can, I can't. I can't show you, tell you the dream. Could you imagine what was going on in the king's mind? Like, wait a minute, I thought you said you could. Now you say you can't? But what Daniel is doing here is removing himself, in a sense, from the equation of saying, this is not from my own wisdom, my own divination, my own thought, but rather, this is a gift from God, this vision. Daniel is saying, I am merely the vessel, the instrument that is not from me. I am not the source of this information. This information is not found in a human, but it only comes from the one true God. No wise men, Daniel says, encanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. Daniel says, no man can give you the answer to these, even not me, but there is a God in heaven who can, and he has. He's given them to me to tell you. Daniel is the messenger. Daniel is not the source of this information. His, the, the power to do this is not from Daniel himself, but from his God. Again, this is about God, not about Daniel. Daniel goes on to explain what the dream was to Nebuchadnezzar here in verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. Daniel's explaining here that the king was laying in his bed, whether he was dreaming or half asleep. He had this dream, and it was what was to come, what was the future? As a monarch, as a king, he would always be concerned about his future, of establishing his kingdom, of would it last, who would be in charge, what, what um, enemies are on the outside. This was the concern of his mind, of what was to come. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, 
but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel says, you've had these thoughts, these concerns, you've had this vision. The only reason I have the answer is because it's been given to me by God. Not because of any wisdom that I have, but it's been given to me by God for you to know. And this is the dream here. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So the king saw this image. The word image is the idea of statue. Not image as in just a picture, but an image, an idol. And it was bright. It was mighty. It was, it was menacing. It was frightening, Daniel says in the end of verse 31. And he goes on to describe it, verse 32. The head of this image was of fine gold. So the head was made of gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So you see this image, this statue was of a man. A figure of a man and its head was gold. Being the top made of gold. Next, the section was of silver and then bronze and then iron and then the feet were iron mixed with clay. Something we notice here of this statue is the decreasing value of the materials. Gold, very valuable. Silver, next. Bronze and then iron. But we also see the harshness of the materials grow as well. Gold was something for jewelry, something that was fine. Silver was often used for things that would be uh, like silverware, uh, utensils, vessels like that. Bronze would be sturdy, maybe things for building, and then iron. Iron and clay, those base materials, but they were used for weapons, for things that would harsh, would be there to destroy. So you see the decreasing value, but the increasing harshness or what the materials would be used for. Daniel explains this. Verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces. So there's this amazing, mighty, terrifying statue made of these four materials. Then all of a sudden, it was broken in pieces. Almost like it explodes. And it became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. It was broken into pieces so fine that it would just blow away with the wind. These aren't chunks like, oh great, now we need to make a pile. This is like dust that's just so fine that a, a gust of wind comes along and just disperses it. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. A tr- not a trace of them could be found. I love my leaf blower. You get that strong gust of wind, according to mine, up to 200 miles per hour, right? Uh, I've tested it on Ezra. It's pretty strong. It usually runs away. (laughs) But you have that leaf blower or the air compressor with the nozzle on it to clean something out because the wind blows it away and nothing can stand against it. And here you have this statue obliterated into fine dust and the wind carries it away so much so that nothing could be found. It's all blown away. But the stone that struck the image, so now we read about how the image was destroyed. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled 
the whole earth. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream was this. This statue was bright and mighty and frightening. It was made of four different materials in decreasing value. And obviously these materials used for different things with uh, um, the, the, the use of it going from uh, more reserved, special, uh, with the gold to the iron, more harsh. And so you have this statue and all of a sudden then it's obliterated, it's destroyed by this stone. And it's destroyed so much so that when the wind comes, it sweeps every remnant of these nations away. This was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And you could see why it'd be like, hmm, I wonder what this means. These are very descriptive things. As we understand prophecy, and specifically here this uh, apocryphal, uh, apo- excuse me, apocalyptic, not apocryphal, that'd be bad. Um, apocalyptic prophecy of, of the future, the imagery is important. The symbols that are used so the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the, the motion of the stone destroying the statue, it's important. And thankfully, Daniel goes on to interpret the dream for the king. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, and the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So Daniel goes on to explain this here, and he talks to Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls him the king of kings. Now understand, this is not Daniel saying that Nebuchadnezzar is God. As we think of Jesus as the king of kings, it's not what he's saying. He's saying he's the king of kings as he's the most powerful king on the earth right now. And Nebuchadnezzar was. They were the world power at this point in time. From 600 BC down to about 530, 520-ish around that time, a long time, Babylon was the world power. He was the king of kings. Everyone paled in comparison to him. And he had dominion over the earth, the known world. And Daniel recounts all this by describing Nebuchadnezzar's position. He is the most powerful man in the world, and Daniel is identifying that. But interestingly enough, Daniel uses a phrase that he's used before in his writing. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar has all of his position and power and authority because the Lord has given it to him. He has given it to him. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar may be a shrewd leader or a wonderful military tactician, but through that, all of those gifts, all of that ability has been given to him by God through his sovereignty to put him in the place that he's in right now. Nebuchadnezzar is who he is, where he's at, because God is the one who is sovereignly at work. You are the head of gold. So as you look at the statue and think of the head of gold, that's Nebuchadnezzar and that's Babylon. Kings and nations are used interchangeably. So when Daniel may speak of Nebuchadnezzar, he's speaking of not only Nebuchadnezzar, but of Babylon. And when he speaks of Babylon, he's speaking of the kings. So kings, nations, kings, kingdoms, they're interchangeable here in this language. So the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's Babylon. This kingdom that is powerful, 
It's the head of gold. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So after Babylon, there will be a different kingdom. One that's inferior to Babylon. Inferior how? There are many ideas, and I think there are a couple uh, good ones. One is inferior as far as, as might and rule and the efficiency and the quality of the culture. Babylon was a very uh, well-established culture with a lot of art and learning and industry. And, and these, um, uh, these nations that follow, they never quite measure up to the, the brilliance of, of Babylon in different ways. It's also inferior, some commentators think, of the quality of the character of the nation. So these nations become more and more pagan. Now, they're all pagan, but they become less and less tolerant of other religions, and the wickedness that is found within them just grows at an exponential rate to where it is just, by the end, blasphemous against God. But it's inferior to Babylon. The rule won't be as long. The quality of the nation won't be as good. This kingdom is inferior, it shall arise after you. Then after that one, and yet a third kingdom of bronze. So now we're at the thighs in the midsection, which shall rule over all the earth. This third kingdom, this kingdom will be one that will rule over all the earth. And that's mentioned specifically that it will be a wide-reaching kingdom. And then lastly, verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these, meaning the previous kingdoms. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. So divided, not in the sense of split, but it will be unstable. It will be uh, prone to uh, up and down of, of turmoil within itself. It will be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. So it's strong, it's harsh. He says, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So this fourth kingdom is one that is powerful and harsh and strong, but yet there is weakness and turmoil and division within it. It will be one that will be filled with a lot of maybe change in rulers of uneasiness and unsteadiness. Verse 44. And in those, and in these, and excuse me, and in the days of those kings, so the kings of this fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, an interpretation sure. So the interpretation of this statue, four kingdoms, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the, the toes of the feet of iron and clay. But there's actually a fifth kingdom. This fifth kingdom is this stone that comes in at the end and utterly destroys these kingdoms. And it shall break these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And what's different about, different about this fifth kingdom? It stands forever. It has no end. It fills the whole earth. 
it is not bound, but is completely filling the earth. And three, it is not made by human hands. It's not a stone cut by human hands. It's a divine kingdom, meaning God is ultimately the one who brings this kingdom about. This is the interpretation, and it is sure. So what Daniel is revealing here to Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar, after your kingdom, there'll come another kingdom, then another, and then this fourth kingdom. But then after that fourth kingdom will come God's kingdom. God's rule here on the earth that will shatter all these other kingdoms. They will be scattered, they will be done away with, and God's kingdom will be established forever because the source of his kingdom is not from man, but it's from himself who is eternal. It will have no end. Nebuchadnezzar, as a king, receives this vision of the future, of history that is to come. Now the question lends itself, who are these kingdoms? Our curiosity is piqued, right? Well, who's the kingdom of silver and the kingdom of bronze and of iron? And how does all this work? We need to be careful we don't say and seek more than the scriptures say. But from this passage and the rest of Daniel, we can have a pretty good idea of the identity of these kingdoms. Of course, the gold kingdom is Babylon. That's clear here. The silver kingdom. What kingdom directly follows Babylon? It's the kingdom of the Merds and or Merds, the Medes and Persians. The, the, the Mersians right there. The Medes and the Persians. Uh, this is Cyrus, King Cyrus. This is Xerxes. Uh, this, this powerful kingdom, not quite as powerful as Babylon, but it follows Babylon. We read in Daniel 8 about this kingdom. So the, the next kingdom, this one of silver, is the Medes and Persians. Following the Medes of Persians is the kingdom of Greece. Alexander the Great conquers the Persians. Um, and his nation, is over, his kingdom is, is perhaps the largest kingdom over the known earth, stretching all the way from Greece all the way into India. And he conquers that amount of, in, in just a few years. It's remarkable. In Daniel chapter 8 and following, that kingdom is shown as a leopard with four wings. It's something that's fast and swift demonstrating the, the speed in which it will conquer. So we have gold, Babylon, the silver, Medes and Persians, the bronze, Greece with Alexander the Great. And following that, we would assume that the kingdom of iron would be that of Rome. Rome is harsh. Rome is this kingdom that conquers all these other kingdoms as well. And the power and ferocity and ferociousness that Rome has is, is unparalleled. It is a harsh, harsh kingdom. But there's some question as to how does God's kingdom then come in at the end? Because Rome obviously has been destroyed, but God hasn't set up his kingdom here on earth. And that brings us to the point that this is prophecy, looking to the future. As much as we love prophecy to line itself out just perfectly for us, to give us all the details, God doesn't do that. Oftentimes in prophecy, an apocalyptic prophecy, there is imagery that is used to describe a theme or a pattern that will happen. This is what it will be like in the end days, in the latter days. 
And so, while I believe that this kingdom of iron does refer to Rome and its harshness and its power and the uh, unsteadiness that was Rome, I believe this fourth kingdom also demonstrates all the kingdoms that follow after Rome, that they are set against God and his people. This fourth kingdom is the nature of the world, in a sense, that all these kingdoms will be set against God and they'll be rising and falling. They'll be divided. There'll be an uneasiness, but they will be harsh. And ultimately, God's kingdom will come and put an end to all of this. Certain theological frameworks believe that when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, that God's kingdom began then. And to a certain extent, it did, but God's kingdom on earth has not been established. The millennial reign hasn't been established yet. You look around, this is not the millennium. This is not God's kingdom on earth making all things right. And so we still look forward to the day when God's kingdom is set up earthly here on earth. That's a quick description, and we're going to talk more about this, of course, here through the book of Daniel, because it's a big, big part of Daniel. So Daniel explains the dream, interprets it, and now we read here Nebuchadnezzar's response. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, and he responds with awe. He falls on his face, and this will not be the last time we see Nebuchadnezzar falling on his face. He'll do this several more times. And he pays homage. He honors Daniel and commands an offering and incense be offered up to him. Daniel is not saying, I've done this, now worship me. (laughs) I could imagine Daniel standing... Daniel's awkwardly standing there saying, you don't need to do this. Don't, don't do this. Like, <laughs> Daniel's not wanting the, this worship. More off, uh, it, it's more a way of Nebuchadnezzar saying thank you to Daniel. And this is what the king answer was to Daniel. He says, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar is getting a hint, a taste, again, of who God is, of who the one true God is. Nebuchadnezzar is not saying that Daniel's God is the only God. Because in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, many gods can live side by sides. And right now, Daniel's God is the God that's winning. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. Man, your God is strong, Daniel. And right now, he is winning over these other gods. Nebuchadnezzar is not you know, confessing his sin and repenting and walking the aisle right here. He is just simply stating the fact that the God that you serve, Daniel, is powerful and wise, and he reveals mysteries. I'm going to add him to my list of gods, Daniel. He'd be a good one to have on my shelf. But we see here how the king continues to honor Daniel. He gave him high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel is now promoted to being the chief wise man. He is the king's direct counselor and aide, and he is governor over the whole province of Babylon, of this whole area. Daniel has gone from being a simple wise man, a young man in exile, and he's now perhaps in the highest position that a wise man could be in, in 
the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is his boss. He is his chief counselor. God has sovereignly ordained things to put Daniel in this position. Verse 49, And Daniel then made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the province of Babylon would have been a large area like a state. And Daniel requests that his friends would be put in that position. And so they are spread out and they are overseeing the affairs of this state. And Daniel remains in Babylon in the, in the capital city in the king's court being the king's direct advisor. God graciously reveals to this wicked pagan king the future. But he's also communicating with Daniel that he is in charge of all things. Though they are in exile and far from Jerusalem, though the people of God seem to be done, though the nations are overrunning the temple, though it seems that the worship of the one true God has been lost, there will be a day when the power and rule of God will be established over all earthly kingdoms and everyone will know who the Lord is. And he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you aren't all that there is, Nebuchadnezzar. There is one greater and more powerful than you. And you are just a drop in the bucket of things to come, Nebuchadnezzar. And the ultimate epitome and ending of history is the coming of the kingdom of God. Daniel is encouraged by this vision and interpretation. The king is forewarned and humbled in a way of who God is through this vision. God is demonstrating his power and his authority and his sovereignty over the nations. It goes back to Psalm 2 when the psalmist says, why do the nations rage? Why is there so much warring? Why is there all this? Because of the pride of sinful man, but yet God is sovereign over all. They fight even though they cannot win. They strive even though they will lose. So as we come to the end here and as we see this, what does this mean for us? First of all, we see God's hand in directing history. These nations, and we have the privilege of looking back and having history and matching that with the Bible and seeing, yeah, how these things line up. And there still are questions that we may have about that fourth kingdom. But what is clear is that that kingdom will come to an end. That it will be utterly destroyed as these other kingdoms have as well. That even though other kingdoms may rise and be set against the one true God, they will not win. God is sovereign through history, through the rising and falling of nations. Secondly, because God is sovereign over these rising and fallings of nations, we should have hope. And we should have peace. And we should trust that God is at work. Daniel was in exile. What did he have? Well, he knows that the Lord is sovereign behind all of these things. He can put his trust, his rest, his peace in who God is and what he's done. They know the outcome. They know what's going to happen. So they can look at the upheaval and the change of leaders and nations with a peaceful heart that's trusting the Lord because they know in the end who's in charge. Even though things happen that they may not know how it's all going to work out exactly, they know the one who is, in a sense, pulling the strings behind it. And thirdly, just as we see God's hand in human history, which should lead us to trust and to hope and to have peace, we need to realize that the ultimate end of all of this is God. It's about Him. 
It's about him and his kingdom and his rule and his reign and, and his authority and his power. It's about him. We sing, how great thou art. Come praise and glorify that we would be to the praise of his glorious grace. Because in the end, what remains from this statue? Nothing from this statue, but the rock that was hewn without human hands that has grown into a mountain that has filled the whole earth. It is God. That God is the ultimate end. And that we should rejoice in that. We should have hope in that because ultimately it's all about him. The upheaval and the change of leaders and nations can cause us to fret. You can read the news. You can look at things happening around the world. And you can think, oh no, what's going to happen? And oh no, what about this? But we know the end. We know the final result. And so we can look at those things with a different point of view. 2016, two things happened in 2016. One, Ezra was born, our first child. Secondly, not as important, but still pretty exciting, the Cubs won the World Series. I remember that night, it was a Wednesday night. You know, God does that, you know. The game starts like at 7 o'clock. Youth group starts at 7 o'clock. It's like, I can't look at my phone. You know, Jesus is better. The game will still be going on after all that, you know. Uh, so all that happens, get home, turn the game on. As my wife would say, baseball takes forever. And it did that night. I remember her going to bed and the game's still happening. And she looked at me and she goes, if they win and you cheer and you wake up Ezra, so help me. Because he's like seven months old at the time. But I remember watching and fretting and I don't normally bite my fingernails. I was biting my fingernails then. And, and they were up and then they were... Then they were tied, then they hit a home run, then they hit a home run, then it was a, a rain delay, and then they went into extra innings, and, and all of this happens, and this and that, and it's like, oh, are we going to win? Are we going to lose? I don't know. Oh, something bad happened. Now what? Oh, my goodness. The guy hit the home run and hit the camera, and it's tied, and oh, up and down. What's going to happen? I don't know. And then, right, the greatest game ever to be played was on a Wednesday in November in Cleveland. The Cubs end up winning the World Series, and in extra innings. Oh, we did it. Cubs did it. The other day I saw a clip that somebody put on, on YouTube and it was highlights from the game. And I, I just took a f- few minutes to watch that. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember that happened. And oh yeah, and oh yeah, they came back. But uh, I knew what was going to happen. Watching the game, knowing what was going to happen, I didn't fret, I didn't fear I looked at the things that were going on. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this is going to happen. I, yeah, okay, they get a run here, but I know this is going to happen. I know the ultimate end. As believers in Jesus Christ, and as people who believe the word of God as trustworthy and sufficient and inspired, we are watching the game knowing who wins. We aren't watching the game thinking, I don't know, are we going to win? No, we are watching the game, and we know Who's going to win? Therefore, when something bad happens, rather than saying, I don't know what's going to happen, we should say, yeah, 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 this happens, but wait for what happens next. As believers in Jesus Christ, as people who've been redeemed through his blood, who believe the inspired word of God, we know the end. Though nations rise and though they may be set against God, we know who has the ultimate victory. So we take those things that come, that are difficult, that are hard, But in the midst of them, we do not despair. 
We do not lose hope, but we have a settled trust in who God is and what he's going to do. The Lord is the one who controls the rising and falling of nations. We should not fret, we should not worry, but we should set our hearts on being to the praise of his glorious grace, understanding that in the end, he wins. That God will be glorified through the rising and falling of nations and through the setting up of his kingdom that will last forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning and the reminder for us, Lord, that you are a great and mighty and powerful God. May we not fret as we see the world around us that's so full of sin and wickedness, Lord, of attitudes that are set against you. Lord, but may we proclaim your goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ, a world that needs to hear us. And Lord, may we trust you, knowing in the end that you win. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope that we have, not only through the prophecy here in Daniel, but through the giving of your son, through his resurrection, and the hope of an inheritance that is kept for us unfading with you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.